Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. We often talk about the wall of worry that markets climb. The new cycle can be pretty terrifying, particularly over the last few years, and yet share markets continue to climb slowly or even quickly higher. Right now, that really seems more true than ever. Today, I'm speaking with Roger Montgomery of Montgomery Investment Management, who's a popular speaker and portfolio manager. When he spoke with us last year, he gave three reasons why he was still bullish on markets, but a lot has changed. So he's kindly agreed to speak with us again. Roger, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, great to be with you, uh, Gemma. Thank you for having me. So I'll put a disclaimer on both of us. I had COVID a couple of weeks ago and Roger's also recovering. So if we uh, if we both struggle verbally uh, with our vocal cords, I apologise. But Roger, when we spoke last, you gave three reasons why you were still bullish on markets. Mm. Can you remind us what those were? Sure. Um, the first one was we were on a path to reopening and that was positive for the economy. Reason two was that we um, had low interest rates and low interest rates were at that stage likely to be long-term maintained. And then, of course, the third reason was we had uh, still very aggressive uh, monetary support, so fiscal and monetary support. So we we had accommodative central banks. Central banks were still um, engaging in quantitative easing and uh, they were buying, buying bonds, essentially, uh, to maintain a relatively flat yield curve. So all of those things were quite positive. Uh, and then, of course, we had quite a rally in the stock market. But more recently, the market has pulled back and we've had uh, Russia and the Ukraine situation as well. Yeah, so my next question is, you know, can you talk us through what, if anything, has changed? It feels like a lot's changed in six or seven months. Yeah, I think the biggest and most important switch has been the change in short-term inflation expectations. So it's really important to distinguish short-term inflation expectations from long-term inflation expectations, which still remain very, very low. Uh, But in the short-term, inflation is much, much higher than what anyone anticipated. And in response to that, central banks are going to be raising interest rates and sooner and more aggressively than what was originally anticipated. Now, the yield curve is, I guess, um, flirting with being inverted. What that means is that expectations are that interest rates will be higher in the short term than they're going to be in the long term. Uh, And so while everyone is worried about inflation and everyone and all the headlines refer to central banks raising interest rates, what we have to remember is that the bond market currently believes, and you see this in the what are called the treasury inflation protected in uh, securities, which are TIPS, uh, and the break-even yield curve, the break-even TIPS yield curve is actually negatively sloped. Um, and that what that says is that the bond market believes that inflation is a short-term phenomena and that the response that it uh, incites from central banks will be enough to quell inflation. That's the expectation at the moment. So that's why I go back to that idea that short-term inflation expectations are high, but longer-term they're lower. 
Of course, markets focus very much, particularly equities, equity investors focus very much on short-term concerns and fears and market loves jumping at shadows and it loves to be concerned about 25 things uh, and it really only needs to be worried about one or two. And as a consequence, the market is very, very nervous about what's happening with interest rates and inflation at the moment. And then on top of all of that, you've now got, I guess, a, a, a slowing consumer that's being hit by these inflationary pressures. So petrol prices have gone up. Uh, we've got, in addition to petrol prices rising, we've got food prices rising, commodity prices rising. Uh, and so all of that is taking its toll on some elements of the consumer sector uh, and those who don't have cash in the bank. And I'm aware that that household saving is still at record levels, but I suspect the people with the household savings aren't the people who are suffering from the inflation pressures. So there's an element of the consumer uh, sector that is being hit negatively by these rising prices and rising energy prices means rising utility bills as well. And so that's like a tax hike uh, and that's having an effect on spending for some people in the economy. Yeah, so a lot has changed. And I think, you know, when, when we look at expectations for interest rates in Australia, yeah, they've changed very, very recently, right? RBA mm. was very, very calm. Yeah, patient. <laughs> they, so they patient, patient. That was exactly. the word. I was trying to avoid using the word patient. I failed. Yes. <laughs> I, I used it. Forgive me. It, um, yeah, so the, and they've said we're not going to be quite so patient anymore. We've been patient enough. And NAB, our economists, are now predicting rate rises in June, August, and you know, many more after that. So mm. it's quite interesting how quickly expectations have changed on that too, particularly here where they were uh, the, uh, the hiking cycle was expected to be much slower. You were careful to note when you were talking about being bullish on the market, that there's always the potential for a 15 to 20% pullback. Yeah. And that has occurred in the NASDAQ. So your timing was pretty much perfect there. Do you think the froth has come off the top of the market? Do you think it's come back a bit too hard? Do you think it's not come back far enough? One of the hardest questions, Gemma, to answer is what is now factored into prices? I don't know if there's more to come on the downside uh, or whether we've seen the worst of it. I, I don't have the answer to that. But what I do know is that there are, there are companies whose PEs have compressed. And when I say PEs, I mean the price-to-earnings ratio. And that is without exception one of the things that you see when interest rates go up and when inflation rises. So when inflation rates are rising, and this is all the way back... To 1979, there has not been a period since 1979 where inflation has risen and PEs have not contracted. So we're seeing that again. We've, that's, and that, that is what has happened and that's what's caused that NASDAQ correction that you um, referred to. And it's one of the reasons why I, I say, look, if you're investing in the stock market, just expect that there's a 15 to 20% correction around the corner because that is ever-present. That risk always exists. Uh, and so it's happened again because PEs this time have contracted and PEs have contracted because inflation has been rising. And that's always the case. So now the question is, what do I invest in? Because PEs could continue contracting. They could go down even further. And we also know that 
And here's another thing since about the 1980s that we know is when the US Federal Reserve, when their balance sheet growth is slowing or contracting, when their balance sheet is, so they're not buying bonds, they're not selling bonds, but they're not buying as many bonds as before. They're allowing them to mature now. and They're not reinvesting that money by buying more bonds. We also know that S&P 500 returns are lower when the central bank does that. And so you've got the combination of inflation and rising interest rates compressing PEs along with the Fed Reserve um, slowing the growth of its balance sheet or contracting its balance sheet. Um, if it gets into quantitative tapering, uh, it, will, um, it will definitely slow the growth of the balance sheet. And so you're going to have lower S&P returns. So in that environment, the question then becomes, how do I make money? How do I, how do I invest with the risk of further compression in PEs, how do I invest? Well, the answer is you've got to have businesses that are growing. You've got to be in businesses where the E in the PE, price to earnings ratio, the E is earnings, you've got to have businesses that are growing the E because we know over the medium and long term, the price of share prices follow earnings. And if the PE is contracting, let's say the PE goes from 30 times to 20 times, well, that's been a very, very big compression uh, in your PE. So you therefore need your earnings to grow by a lot to make up for that compression. Because if the PE is going to stay where it is now, so it's going to drop from 30 to 20, then the only way you can make money is by the E growing. If the PE stays at 20, then if earnings are growing at 50% and the PE stays the same, well, the share price will go up 50%. So the only way to make money in this environment, I believe, is to focus your portfolio on companies that are demonstrating quality and earnings growth. I think you've answered all my questions. Oh, <laughs> you've certainly that. answered investors' questions because well, what do I invest in in this market is well, so, the question so, hanging over everyone's head. Yeah, so let me give you an example of a sector um, where you apply this kind of philosophy. So in the retail sector, if you're investing in retail at the moment, then you are exposed to the macroeconomic environment unless you buy retailers that are rapidly growing stores. So probably the poster child in Australia for a retailer that's rapidly growing stores would be LaVisa and then maybe Accent Group and then maybe Universal. Um, Another, another retail stock that, that looks okay is Adairs. Adairs look really, really cheap at the moment, but they're, they're not rolling out stores at a rapid rate. But they've bought a sofa business. They've bought a, a sofa retailer uh, and it's got a few stores at the moment, but it'll be rolling out more of those stores. So it's, I guess it's a lot less aggressive on the store rollout than the other three. But that's an example of a sector where if you're going to drill down to, um, to, at, to a stock level, then you wouldn't want to own businesses that aren't opening stores rapidly because they're then only exposed to the macroeconomic environment. I worry that interest rates rising uh, will reduce access to capital for people buying property. And so we'll start to see property prices, if not soften, we'll start to see property prices not going up at the same rate. So the wealth effect from property starts to diminish and also because if it also transpires that rising interest rates result in lower property turnover because you end up in this sort of 
no man's land where no one's under any pressure to sell. And because no one's under pressure to sell at the moment, you don't get rapid turnover of property, but no one's really that keen to buy now. And a lot of people have bought over the last couple of years. So you get this sort of stabilisation in turnover or a slowdown in turnover. And then that, that feeds into a slowdown in renovations and additions or what we call alterations and additions demand. So you get a slowdown maybe in 12 months' time in renovations and then from that you get a slowdown in people buying furniture to fit out their new renovations. So, you know, you've got to be really careful when you're buying retail stocks, for example, based on what I said about making sure that E is growing. You've got to really think through the transmission mechanisms that uh, transpire from a rise in interest rates as a result of inflation going up. So there's a lot to think about, but it's actually fun to think about this stuff. Retail's a really fantastic example and that point about growth is really interesting because certainly a lot of investors have enjoyed uh, the rise of growth stocks over the last 10 to 15 years. Indeed. If we go back to the macro factors, and I think this is where a lot of investors are feeling challenged, they can see a great story for growth in some companies and some sectors. But one thing that's really concerning people is that maybe inflation won't be transitory, uh, particularly with oil, uh, you know, the impact of uh, rising oil prices. We've had this before, right? It was a very long time ago. It was long before many of our listeners would remember or have mm. even been alive in some cases. Uh, but, it, you know, it affected the entire economy and we haven't made the transition to renewables quickly enough to be completely independent of oil supply. Do you think the market has responded appropriately to that yet? You know what? I think the market is remaining relatively supported despite that big increase in the oil price. Because unlike the 1970s, we are less dependent on oil. So we're not completely independent. We haven't transitioned to a whole fleet in Australia of electric vehicles. And that's going to take 25 years, by the way. To it, We're going to see more and more EV vehicles sold as a proportion of all cars sold. But it's still going to take 24 or 25 years for the entire fleet of Australia's cars to move over to being all electric or all hydrogen or all something other than internal combustion cars. So that process takes a long time. We sell about a million new cars sold every year. Of that million, about 700,000 of them replace existing vehicles and only about 300,000 of them are added to the existing fleet. So the fleet of cars I think is about 18 to 20 million cars. And so we're adding about 300,000 cars a year or thereabouts or about 1.5% to the fleet. Uh, and then the other 700,000 are replacing existing. So the fleet grows at about 1.5% a year, 1.5% to 2% a year, and we're replacing about 700,000 of them. So even if every new car sold, even if every new car sold today was electric, it would take more than, well, more than a decade to transition to a fully electric fleet. And we're only selling at the moment about, I think about 3% or 4% of all new cars sold are electric. So it's going to take a decade and a half to completely, this is a long-winded answer to your question, by the way, but um, it's going to take decades and decades and decades before we're completely independent of oil. So that's not going to happen anytime soon. 
but we're a lot less dependent industrially to oil than what we were 30 years ago. In fact, there's an estimate that the US is about 70% less dependent on oil as an economy today than it was back in the 1970s. So while the oil price has gone up a lot, and I saw a forecast actually this week that the oil price is going to go to three um, to three hundred dollars a barrel, two to three hundred dollars a barrel. I, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. That was just some crazy forecast out there that I saw. But even if it did, and that would inspire a lot of fear, and I think you know you would see some sort of correction in the stock market. What you have to be confident about is that we're a lot less dependent on oil than we were in the past. So in answer to your question, I think the market at the moment, based on where oil is, has taken account of the uh, economy's dependency on oil and it's relatively less dependent uh, compared to the past. And that's, I think that's the market's done the right thing at the moment, yes. That's a really interesting answer. And I haven't heard anyone talk about that, the sort of reduction in dependency uh, to that extent. I do think the transition to electric will be quicker just simply because we... Uh, get what we're given when it comes to vehicles. Yes, and, and if everybody's moving to electric, that's what we're getting. But we don't we, manufacture vehicles here anymore. And also right. when it's very difficult to buy petrol in Australia because, frankly, it's not viable for to small retailers to sell it to you, then you might make that transition a little bit faster. But it'll take a while. It will take a while because, you know, we have to, it'll be faster if we're selling a million electric vehicles a year out of the million cars that are sold every year. But we're a long, long way from that. So it, yes, it will happen, but it will take quite some time. And remember, we've got all of those, and we may get into this, but we've got all of those supply chain bottlenecks that have only been made worse by the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and it's now causing real problems for the, the vehicle manufacturing industry. So only this week, BMW announced that it's shutting down two manufacturing plants in Germany. The uh, Volkswagen is uh, contemplating doing the same thing. And Mercedes-Benz is rapidly trying to find alternative sources for things like uh, wire harnesses. So those the wires, there's thousands of wires that run through a car and those wiring harnesses, 10 to 15% of them come from Ukraine. Uh, and uh, it takes a long, long time to redirect or find new supply of those wiring harnesses because the factories that make them have to retrain staff and it just takes a long time. So so, you know, the, the transition to electric vehicles will be delayed by this event as well. I think a lot of our investors would be a bit sad. Everyone's buying lithium at the moment. Uh, <laughs> they want to hear that it's all happening now. Well, uh, on, on lithium, I think, I think a lot of the good news on lithium is currently being factored into uh, to prices. You know, we saw last year the real speculative end of the lithium trade and I wrote about it in the Australian newspaper last year and, and early last year was talking about lithium stocks, but a lot of them are up between 45 and 200%. Uh, and so I think it's Pilbara Minerals, for example, is up 229% just in the last 12 months. So, you know, I think a lot of the good news has been factored into lithium stocks uh, and it's, it's a commodity exposed sector and when the heat comes out of it, comes out really quickly. And I think the story is a long-term one, and I think it's a really good story, and I think it's a once-in-a-generation once transition uh, in terms of the, you know, the, the mobility sector uh, to electric vehicles, uh, and you'll make a lot of money out of that. Um, but buying them at today's prices might be a risky thing to do. I'd, I'd rather wait for a pullback. 
Oh, that's really interesting. There's, uh, I was just preparing for a, uh, a little chat I'm having later with some journalists and it was kind of like, what are people buying? I was like, but basically just a super long list of lithium companies. Uh, a couple of other things, mostly lithium. Yep. You mentioned before we came on that you had just come from your investment committee meeting yes. and you were saying ordinarily 15 minutes, over an hour today, it's all happening. Mm. Any thoughts you can share with us? Well, the two big conversations we were having were, were actually about the lithium story. We invested in our Montgomery Small Companies Fund, and I hope you don't mind me mentioning that, we we invested in the lithium story. We call it the decarbonisation theme, and that was the way that we expo- we gained exposure to that thematic. We think it's a structural thematic. We think it's going to be lasting, as I said, for many decades. That story is going to keep going. There's a huge shortage a huge shortage in in lithium. I mean, we know that we know that there are auctions of single bags of lithium, like literally small handbags of lithium, virtually um, going on in Australia, where you know it's excess to contracted supply. Um, they've got a little bit more, and they're selling these things at insane prices. And so, what analysts are doing is they're saying, okay, well, that's the lithium price. Let's factor that in. Um, but it is a commodity. Uh, and it will go through, you know, it will react uh, to all sorts of unimaginable events, things that we we haven't thought of right now. Uh, and so having bought a lot of these lithium stocks over a year ago and having done very, very well out of them, we've, we we sold out of the the really speculative explorers um, and the hopefuls. We, we had some exposure to those because they were the most leveraged, but we, we decided that uh, it's best to have exposure to producers. And so we, we actually reduced some time ago our exposure to those, those really um, speculative lithium stories. Uh, and they've, since, you know, they've recently pulled back. And so we were spending some time this morning just discussing whether or not uh, it was wise to actually return to, the, to looking at those stocks, but we still think it's too early. So we can, that was a conclusion that we reached today um, with lithium. The other big conversation that we had was about the payment system and how that's that's changing around the world. And Australia is, is actually very, very advanced on the payments front. And we often look to America and think, gosh, America is such an advanced country uh, technically or technologically. Um, in the payment space, they're not. They're way behind us. And so we've spent a lot of time talking about the OSCO uh, system and comparing it to the BPAY system, which, of course, all the banks own a stake in. Uh, and so we, we spent a long time thinking about who's going to be disrupted and who's going to benefit from the ultimate, ultimately what we think is a transition to friction-free or cost-free rails for payments. And we were talking about who the most expensive rails are. So the most expensive rails, obviously, Visa, you know, and, uh, and we think the, the world of being able to take people's money, hang on to it, and then make give the money to the merchant whose goods were purchased, you know, giving that money a couple of days later and earning interest on the on, while you held it for a few few days, that that world is, you know, that's a dead man walking. We think that technology is is evolving so rapidly, and OSCO is an example of that. You know, somebody can turn up on my driveway to buy a car, a secondhand car from me. And, uh, and I can say, you know what, you're not taking that car till I see the money in my account. 
and we use our mobile phones and through OSCO, I can see the money in my bank account seconds after it's been transferred. That's the future. And so we think the, the old world is rapidly devolving uh, and that's going to have huge impacts, uh, huge implications for companies like um, Tyro, uh, for example. You know, I think it was ANZ who's now out of that merchant kind of terminal business. Uh, I think those businesses are going to have a really, really tough time in the future. So we, we spoke about that as well. Uh, and then finally, we had the conversation about retail and where we want to invest in retail. And we made the decision that we we're in the right place. We're in store rollout stories, rapidly uh, rapidly rolling out stores. And we're not invested in businesses that are exposed to the economy cyclically. You know, we think that while inflation is going up and interest rates are likely to rise, that's going to have a hit on consumer hip pockets, uh, as we talked about a moment ago, uh, and so um, refined our exposure to retail to just those with the rapid store rollout story. Oh, that's all so interesting. I, uh, I love the payments one. And I think, you know, because none of us have travelled for a couple of years, so we've completely mm. forgotten what it's like to actually be in another country and function there for any period of time. But the idea that the US government was mailing out checks to people for their stimulus is still one of the most extraordinary things to process. I mean, when was the last time you saw a check in real life? I actually have one in my, I got a check for $400. I can't remember who gave it to me. They gave it to me a year ago and it's here somewhere. I've got it in my bag actually. I'll tell you exactly what it is. One second. <laughs> actually, I've got one for $13 and it's sitting on my bench yep. and it will probably never get cash. And it was from, you know, like an insurance you know, some insurance we had and then we cancelled uh, the policy because we didn't need it and there was a bit extra yeah. left over and they just sent me a cheque. It's extraordinary. So, yep, so this is a this was a cheque from I, I had to stay in a hospital last year and I overpaid for my stay and um, and so it's for $402.30 and it was given to me, it's dated the 28th of April last year. So I have to, it's almost a year old. I've been carrying it around for a bank. year. You've got to go to the bank. But it, like, when it tells do you go you, to the bank? I know. It's such an extraordinary transition. I was So there's the checks thing in the US that it, those of us who were around during the GFC will remember that the original fiscal stimulus that I experienced anyway in Australia was putting $900 in everybody's bank account. And yeah. that was how they were going to get the economy functioning again. I mean, that was in 2008, 2009 maybe, and GFC, but, you know, 13 years before the US was doing the same thing. We were doing it digitally and they're still doing yes. it via paper. I mean, that's incredible. Imagine how many they, went to the wrong address and all the things that go wrong when you do things manually. Well, the banks, I mean, it wasn't that long ago in Australia that the banks were doing this as well, but it's still happening in the United States. The banks in the US literally grab all their checks that have been written on another bank's checking account uh, and they bundle them all up in a bag and then the trucks meet at a secret location overnight and they literally pass the bags over and they swap bags. That's still going on in the US and it used to happen here in Australia. <laughs> I don't know oh if it still God. happens in Australia, but that's, oh. how, that's how checks were exchanged oh. between banks. They yeah, in the world's largest economy. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So that's just extraordinary. The other one, this is very anecdotal and from a long time ago, but everyone in Australia is familiar with FBOS and now we tap, but we used to swipe and put our pin in. And I remember when I first moved to London thinking I was very sophisticated, um, 
after I finished uni and I took my FPOS card and, you know, my banking stuff and had to transition over to the UK and they didn't have FPOS. They had a system called Switch and even though it was from your uh, transaction account, so it it wasn't credit, it was from your transaction account, it took 48 hours to clear. So yeah. you could overdraw your transaction accounts using the equivalent of FPOS, which was obviously impossible in Australia at the time. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, so far behind. What's happening? I was so confused by it. And, and what investors need to realise is that these systems, and it might sound, you know, esoteric, and you might be wondering why we're talking about it, these systems are businesses and they're owned either by the banks or they're owned, into, you know, for example, Tyro, you know, they're, their, their own, somebody owns these systems. So when it, the demise of FPOS after we saw, you know, tap, tapping, uh, the demise of FPOS, it, you know, it's a, it's a financial company. It's, it's owned by the banks uh, and it's been on the decline now for some time. They're rapidly uh, moving towards a, um, a QR code technology. FPOS is uh, developing a QR technology. So, um uh, at, at the merchant, you'll be able to scan a QR code and be able to pay for your item using a QR code. And FPOS is trying to compete with tap and go. And eventually, you know, in 10 years' time, it'll be completely different technology that we use for payments to what we're using today. And it's it's interesting not just because, you know, it's a curiosity, it's 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 investable. These themes are investable. And that's why uh, that's why it's really important to be thinking about them and understanding them. Yeah, I think, and thank you for kind of giving a bit more context to it because I'm here rolling out the anecdotes, but it's absolutely true. And I think also anyone who's listening who's a business owner will know this. It's so material for business. Yes. Uh, Being able to transact quickly, get paid quickly and so on. Uh, The difference is so material Uh, and it has implications for banks and so on as well. So it's a really fascinating area. And if you're not close to it, it's really worth a look. It seems, it can seem quite opaque, I think, and terribly boring if you're you're not close to it. But the implications are absolutely enormous. I love that example. It's fantastic. Look, knowledge is power. And, um, you know, if it means you can go to a merch, you you can turn up at a store and they're trying to charge you 50 cents because your transaction is too small, um, you can turn around and say to them, do you know what? You actually don't get charged a merchant fee on small transactions, so you shouldn't be charging me 50 cents. Um, you know, knowledge is power. It's really important. I'll try that. Uh, <laughs> we are seeing a lot of investors hoarding cash at the moment, and I think these kinds of conversations really help people go, do you know what, just because the world's looking a bit complicated doesn't mean there's nothing to invest in. Uh, apart from small cap resources, which are obviously going mad at the moment, we're not seeing a lot of active trading currently. So investors are becoming a little bit more cautious. We're seeing far more uh, bigger investors making wholesale shifts in their portfolios, but we're seeing much less by the dip activity. We're seeing mar- far less uh, active trading from smaller investors. They've really gone to the sidelines and we're seeing larger investors make sort of quite significant shifts. Mm. Do you think those sorts of trends are appropriate in this environment? It's really interesting to me. Well, I think, the, I think one of them is the response to um, people losing money. So when stocks fall, and we've seen a lot of those, those what I call the profitless prosperity stocks falling, um, the PEs have compressed on those companies that weren't making any money, then people get their fingers burnt 
and you know they're licking their wounds for a while, and uh, and so it's quite a, it's quite common to see uh, liquidity dry up immediately after a sell-off. Uh, you get a big spike in volume during that sell-off, uh, and then everything quietens down for a while again till people regain their confidence. Uh, so I think that's quite normal. I think people are you know are uncertain, very uncertain about. Uh, about the outlook for interest rates, inflation, and the economy, uh, for all the reasons that we've already discussed, uh, and so consequently, there's less clarity um, about the what the future holds, and so it's I think it's appropriate that people are are responding the way that they are. I still believe that it's when everyone else is fearful uh, that you want to really sharpen the pencil and start focusing in on where the opportunities are because. Um, we will, as sure as the sun rises tomorrow, uh, there'll be a period where the market looks really great again and it's roaring ahead again. Now, I don't know if that's going to be next week, next month or next year, but I do know it'll happen again. And if you, know, if you wait for the swallow to sing, uh, summer's over. So, um, you know, you, you've, got to be, you've got to be looking when everyone else is really fearful. I think that's really helpful. I love the fact you've put some ideas on the table for people. It helps a great deal. Uh, any other advice for investors who are feeling like they're on shaky ground right now? I think the place to be looking uh, is is you know in stocks that have a, what we call a mega trend tailwind behind them. So um, I mentioned earlier, for example, you want companies that are growing their earnings. And ideally, you want the earnings growth to be independent of economic conditions. So you want to look for what we call structural growers, and structural growers are those companies that are benefiting from a, a tailwind, and I, I refer to megatrends, for example. So, so one of those is the cloud, the transition to the cloud. Uh, you might think that the cloud is just about you know streaming videos or listening to Spotify or, or something like that, but but it's much much more than that. So, the cloud is the democratization of IT for all businesses. And so, at an enterprise level, at a, at a business level, it used to be that only big businesses could afford big IT spends, and they had entire floors of their office buildings dedicated to IT and racks and racks of servers. Um, and an, a team of IT people to maintain it all. And small business couldn't compete with that. But now with the move to the cloud, all of that IT is in the cloud and you can rent a server, you can rent the space, you can rent the storage that you want. And, the, and you can, you can, any company can compete with a big company now uh, uh, on, a, on a level playing field. And the transition to the cloud at an enterprise level is probably less than a third of the way through. That's where mobile phones were 12 years ago. Smartphones were 12 years ago. So there's still a lot of growth. There's still a really long runway of growth. So companies like NextDC or Macquarie Telecom and to a lesser extent Unity's under takeover now, but Unity Wireless, um, you know, those sorts of businesses uh, are businesses that are structural growers that are you know will be critical infrastructure in the future, uh, and so a business like Macquarie Telecom, for example, is you know is a business that we own uh, in in you know significant proportion in our small companies fund. David Tudhope runs that. Um, they're still in their growth phase, but when they finish growing, 
they will be a critical a piece of critical infrastructure earning a great yield that an infrastructure buyer like a pension fund or a Macquarie infrastructure fund, you know, they'll they'll want to own that piece of infrastructure. So we think that that business is probably worth more than $100 a share. Um, you have to go and do your own analysis, obviously, and your own due diligence. Um, it's trading at about $65. We think it's worth a lot more than that. And we think it could be taken over eventually by, uh, by a big pension fund that says, you know what, look at this great piece of infrastructure. It's fully tenanted. It's throwing off cash. Uh, it's got a good yield. Um, interest rates are still low. We think, you know, we think this is worth a lot of money. Um, and so that that story is yet to play out, and that's why we own it in our um, small companies fund. I love that one too, Roger. You provide commentary in the media. You produce some excellent thought pieces, and the commentary on your funds gives people great insight into the work you're doing. Where can people go to find out more about Montgomery Investment Management and the work you guys are up to? Oh, I appreciate the invitation to actually explain. Um, so we we have a blog that we have been um, maintaining now for 12 years um, and uh, it ha- it's full of information that you can search by keyword uh, and it's at rogermontgomery.com uh, and we contribute, a, there's probably a blog post or two every day and uh, we're always posting on what we're thinking at the moment, what we like, what we don't like, uh, responses to macroeconomic news, so it's just a good one to subscribe to and and we have you know we have tens and tens of thousands of subscribers to that blog uh, and then if you're interested in our funds we actually have uh, a whole bunch um, we we manage domestic equities and and our small companies fund has been one of the top performing funds since its inception we also have partnered with a group called Poland Capital uh, and they've been managing money uh, in high-quality growth stocks for over 30 years. Uh, and, in fact, Poland's flagship fund has been run since 1989 and it's generated about 15.5% per annum for over 30 years. So it's done a great job of beating the index. Uh, and then most recently, and we haven't yet announced this, so you're the first person that we're talking to about this, we've partnered with uh, a gentleman named Brett Craig who's formerly from Macquarie Bank, and four and a half years ago, he set up a a private credit fund, uh, and he's generated about 9.8% per annum, producing monthly income with no negative months for four and a half years. So we'll be launching his uh, private equity fund to uh, investors in Australia in the coming months. Um, And I'm really excited about that because I know people are desperate for income. It's not the same as a a bank account, it's not the same as a term deposit or anything like that. Uh, it is private credit, so you need to understand the risks associated with private credit. Uh, but he's been generating very attractive returns now for four and a half years in private credit. So we we really like the idea of being able to lend money to small and medium enterprises but have a fund manager that is doing the due diligence on which businesses to actually lend to to generate those good returns. So, yeah, so there's a lot going on and thank you for inviting me to speak about those briefly. Roger, thank you so much for joining us today and thank you so much for getting through it. It's um, talking for 45 minutes when you've uh, been ill is very impressive, but we really appreciate your time today. Uh, An absolute pleasure, Gemma, and thank you for the opportunity to speak with you again.
Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback from you guys. We love getting your questions and particularly hearing about what you want to hear more about. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.